Hey, I'm Liz Nord. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. Every documentary production faces some challenges in terms of ethics, truth, and authenticity, perhaps now more than ever in what some are calling a post-truth era. These dilemmas can be multiplied when the filmmakers come from very different backgrounds than their protagonists, especially if there's an imbalance of societal power between them. This has been the case in several recent American docs that explore race, made by white filmmakers, about black subjects. Now, just because this dynamic exists doesn't inherently mean that the resulting films are going to be inaccurate or unfair, but it does mean that extra steps need to be taken to ensure that they're not. This exact predicament faced my guests on today's podcast when they made the beautiful, moving documentary For Akeem, which premiered at the prestigious Berlin Film Festival earlier this year. The film's co-directors are two middle-class white men from New York City, namely Emmy Award-winning duo Jeremy S. Levine and Landon Van Sust. And their subject is a charismatic 17-year-old African-American girl named Daje Shelton from outside of Ferguson, Missouri, where a fellow black teenager Michael Brown had been famously shot and killed by police. The story of Daje's young life as portrayed in the doc has universal elements like falling in love and stressing about exams, but it's also an enlightening window into the low-income African-American experience at large. And no matter who you are as an audience member, you will undoubtedly root for the remarkable young woman's success. In order to overcome the challenges of telling such a story as complete outsiders, Levine and Van Sust made Daje a partner in the filmmaking process and diversified the larger crew of people working on their film. I think you'll really enjoy the very frank and fascinating discussion I had with the co-directors and one of the film's producers, Iabo Boyd, who not coincidentally is an African-American woman, after the film's North American premiere at Tribeca 2017. Um, I would like you to start just by introducing yourselves and saying your role in the film. I'm Landon Van Soost. I'm a co-director of Forking. I'm Jeremy Levine, the uh, other co-director of the film. I'm Iabo Boyd. I'm a co-producer on the film. Uh, so the premiere was last night, or the U.S. premiere was last night here at Tribeca. Congratulations. Uh, how did it go? How do you feel? Uh, it was amazing. It was just kind of incredible to have everybody come out, come back together. It's a bit like a reunion, and I think it's the first time we've been able to see everybody outside of St. Louis. So we had um, Daje Shelton there, the, the um, kind of star of the show, uh, who had actually never been on a plane before, and she came and overcame her fears to, to come to the premiere, so that was incredible. We had uh, Judge Jimmy Edwards, who started the school that kind of inspired the, the film in the first place there, and um, yeah, just our whole team. It was incredibly moving. I think we're all New York-based, so besides being able to bring Daje and the judge in, um, it was just kind of this incredible homecoming for us. You know, we were able to have so many of our um, collaborators and friends and family here, so it was just a, an incredible celebratory experience. I know that your world premiere was at <clears throat> was at Berlin International not that long ago, and it, it's a very American film. So I'm also curious about the reaction there, and even what the programmers in Berlin kind of said that you know intrigued them about the work. I think um, it was kind of amazing to us. You know, we went out to Berlin, which was was so exciting um, for us, and I think we had no idea what to expect. We heard, you know, maybe it'll be kind of this strange American film that will get lost in the um, kind of, you know, celebrity uh, big films at, at Berlin. But um, it was kind of amazing that people were incredibly into it. 
and really interested, I think, to understand what was going on in the United States. And um, because of that, everyone was really engaged and, and had tons of questions. We just had, you know, incredible um, full theaters and really long in-depth Q&As. And I don't know, it was a pretty incredible experience. Yeah, I think we were a bit overwhelmed by the response, really. I mean, bear in mind, we were in Berlin about two weeks after Donald Trump's inauguration. So I think there was a huge amount of curiosity about what the hell was going on in America. Um, you know, we were also just in some incredible company there. Um, Raul Peck's film, I'm Not Your Negro, was there, and Yancey Ford's film, Strong Island. And I think we were able to sort of talk about um, representations of black Americans in cinema in a way that um, was really gratifying. And um, just a lot of incredible conversations about where America is and, and sort of global politics and why stories like this are so important right now. And just to speak to what you said about the programmers, we were in the forum, which is a really interesting program where they don't tell the audience if the film is fiction or doc. They kind of like this um, writing that line on the slash, you know? And um, so they, that brought up a ton of really interesting conversations that we would never have at any other festival because of just trying to um, feel out um, reality um, you know, in Daje's life, but also how it's representative of so many other people um, on many levels. And also creatively, you know, um, we're so proud of like how cinematic the film, you know, came out in terms of the way it, it was shot and the way it was edited and, and also, edit, you know, just choices on storytelling. So it was really cool um, to be able to con be considered on a, um, a level of like a beautiful narrative fiction film too. Yeah, for sure. I actually want to ask you guys about how it was shot because it is so beautiful. But I feel like, um, you know, you, we can't even sort of keep talking about this film without addressing some of the stuff that you touched on, which is, you know, race and class and how that played into it, especially from a filmmaking perspective. So for those uh, listeners who can't see us, which is all of you, um, <laughs> you two co-directors look kind of like white academics um, or NPR hosts, I don't know, something. It's white guys, white guys. Um, and um, Iabo, I don't know when you came into the production, um, but the, the, your shooter also was a white man. And 98% of the people in your film are African-American. I'm presuming from a different socioeconomic you know, class than you are. So I have a lot of questions about that. And the first one is just how did you convince everyone that you were trustworthy and, and that it was like okay to have you around with a camera in their face? I mean, I, I think, you know, you're apt to say that we sort of came at this originally from an academic level that I think, you know, we started to see the rates of, you know, not only incarceration, but also suspensions and expulsions um, and <clears throat> kind of what's come to be termed the school to prison pipeline. Um, and the way that we basically punish kids, and there's sort of no denying the fact that that is very disproportionate for black and Latino kids, um, specifically in low-income neighborhoods like the one that we shot in in St. Louis. Um, so I think we went in and we met this incredible judge who had founded a school um, to basically try to break that cycle, um, to try to keep kids in school, keep them out of the judicial system, um, and really just opened a lot of doors for us and gave us a lot of access um, you know, I think that we really owned the fact that we were complete outsiders going into that experience from the get-go. Um, and we really knew that we needed a strong partner to help tell the story. 
And I think everything you know that, that the film has become is really due to the relationship that we were able to build with our main character, with Dajay Shelton, over the last three years. Um, you know, I, we'd really, as much as it may look like, you know, we're sort of attempting to be flies on the wall. I think it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, we were deeply involved in her life. We grew very close to her and her family. We continue to be. Um, and I think that that trust and that partnership and the agency that we gave her and the storytelling was something that was really vital to us. So actually then I'm curious about those shooting setups because some of the scenes are so intimate in a really beautiful way, but we're talking about like relationship scenes with a boyfriend and girlfriend or a girl's sleepover in a bedroom. And again, like three white guys, if I were like, doing a drone shot like what does it actually look like where are you positioned in these in these uh shots and are you all three there with one or two kids yeah i mean you know we had a kind of an amazing team and i think all of us are able to jump in and and film or run sound and so we were kind of a fluid team in that way where Sometimes it would be all three of us. Um, sometimes it would just be one of us there. Um, and it kind of was, you know, literally there were moments that one of us would like hand off the camera to somebody else in the team and we'd kind of continue filming um, and, and kind of keep the, the fluidity that way. But I do think, um, you know, we were close. We weren't, as Landon said, we weren't flies on the wall. I feel like you feel that closeness in the film. So we weren't hanging back. We were in their lives and you know we would spend much more time without cameras just hanging out with them and and building our relationships and so i think you know it became i don't think you know you never disappear into the background you're like a human being with a camera and a microphone in the room with them but it's about building that relationship and building that trust and i think that's um, really kind of key to to what we were trying to do to round out this kind of part of the conversation, the flip side of, of this, so, so here you are, and you're making your personal relationships, and it does show in the film, and that's really beautiful, even though we don't see any of the production team's faces, but how do you, you know, then and sort of post, and when you're creating something to present to the world, how do you avoid making, like, for lack of a better word, like poverty porn, where it's like, oh, look how hard it is there. Well, I'm gonna go get my latte. You know, it's it's a great question, a really important question, and I think it's something that we've we grappled with kind of throughout production, and something we've thought about and continue to to talk about. And I don't think there's kind of any easy answers. Um, I do think we continued to involve Daje in the process. Um, you know, about a, a year into production, we just we she started telling us about this journal that she was keeping, and that she wrote, wrote into in it pretty much every day. Um, and she read us some of the entries and they were really incredible and uh, kind of brought some new depth to to her story and, and kind of her inner life. So we uh, worked with her to kind of do those, do readings of her journal entries. We would show her footage from the film and have her react. And so, you know, it, it wasn't that she was kind of making every editing decision with us, but we were continuing to it involve her in the process of crafting her story and that was important to us because again we are uh, outsiders to her world in every way and we felt it was really really important to do her story justice and you know I think 
um, you know, people can take away what, what they will from the film. But when we first showed her the finished film, uh, her reaction was just so moving to, to me. I mean, she just, she was so excited to see it. She got so emotional at, you know, seeing um, these different moments in her life. And, and she just said, like, this is me. This is, this is my life. And I think that was kind of, um, you know, it was one of the most exciting moments of the process so far. Yeah, I think the idea of reinforcing stereotypes or falling into cliches is something, I mean, that's our deepest fear, really. Um, and I think as, you know, we were tracking her life, it was sort of undeniable that she lives in this neighborhood that's economically devastated. Um, you know, there's a lot of gun violence. She, you know, was pregnant as a teenager and a lot of these things that I think were unfortunate truths, you know, that we had to, to sort of grapple with and, and look at the way that we represented those things. Um, and for us, I think what we constantly came back to was just the idea that this is a coming of age story, you know, of one young girl. And she's emblematic of so many young people like her, but we were just so rooted in her story. And I think that we, we wanted as much as humanly possible to show all of these events from her point of view. Um, and as Jeremy said, I think when we, you know, really kind of started to talk with her at a deeper level and sort of starting to analyze some of these events in her life, you know, we discovered that she um, was keeping a pretty active journal. Um, and, you know, she trusted us to the point that she was able to open that up and share that with us. And I think that um, contribution to ultimately what became the narration for the film is really, you know, at the heart of what we were able to accomplish. And I think seeing the way that she reacts to being in a courtroom, seeing the way that, you know, she reacts to getting pregnant and, and hearing, you know, what's going on inside her head at some level, um, you know, was really kind of what brought us there and I think what closed the circle. Um, and I think that, you know, was sort of epitomized when Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, um, just a couple miles away from the school. Um, I think it was tempting for us, you know, to kind of go towards the more sensational national news story. But I think, again, we just said, you know, we need to really understand how Daje internalizes these experiences, how, um, you know, young kids in, in communities just like Michael Brown's live with these events day in, day out. I just want to say, too, because, you know, no film school is about filmmakers and understanding, like, what's kind of behind the scenes and how does this stuff work? Like, in terms of the team, you know, these guys brought in uh, a female editor, Lily Henderson, which I think really, like, enabled the edit, as you sort of asked about post-production, to have that, um, to sort of be, have a, you know, a feminine perspective and to say, like, okay, well, when I was 17 and I was, you know, a girl like Daje, I would have been thinking this in this moment. And all of the, that, that woman's perspective did inform, you know, some of the storytelling and the choices that were made. Um, and I felt really lucky as a producer that they, you know, that I spend a lot of time in the edit room as well and felt like as a black woman that I was able to contribute a lot um, to, you know, the storytelling stuff. So that was really um, incredible, too. Um, these, these are, of course, like you said, these are two white guys, but these guys really care genuinely about questioning and challenging themselves um, in this work, both as individuals, um, as like individual people, as directors of this film, and as like, you know, people who are in this industry and documentary and the greater issues we have about um, privilege and positioning and perspective and like who's telling what stories and also just how do we move us forward as an industry. So at every single checkpoint 
throughout the entire you know process of making this film, these guys took extra steps to check themselves and to question themselves and to and to look into to lean into Daje and lean into her story and say, okay, how do we ensure that this is as truthful and authentic and organic as possible, you know, and, and make sure that this is a positive experience beyond just the making of this film. Yeah, I, I think that's, um, you know, incredibly important. And I think for any, um, you know, outside filmmaker, any white filmmaker working in a African-American community or kind of whatever the combination is, it's incredibly important if you take that on that you're constantly questioning yourself and, and kind of checking your, your privilege and, um, you know, it, it was really important. I think it's, it's kind of a, you know, it, it's a risky thing to do and you need to make sure that you're kind of ready to, to deal with um, everything that comes with it. So I think it was something we, we did throughout production and then we also, you know, specifically held um, feedback screenings of Rough Cuts in St. Louis. We did screenings specifically for uh, African-American women, and we just kind of kept making, trying to check in and make sure uh, the story we were trying to tell was coming across um, in the, you know, in the way that we were hoping it would resonate with the world. And just a final plug, like, it's really important, just as this is falling on the ears of filmmakers out there, it's really important to diversify your team as early as possible, both in terms of gender and race, but also class, which is something that we never talk about in our industry, but thinking about the diversity in your team is super important as early as possible. And, and if you don't do it early, it's still never too late, you know, <laughs> to reconsider how to do that later on, too. Well, so <clears throat> since we are speaking to filmmakers, if someone's hearing this and they're like, you're right, oh my gosh, everyone on my team is like the same, has the same background, how do you, how do, does one even begin to do that diversification if, for example, their crew or people they grew up with and they've all always worked on their films together and they're the only ones they know, how do you do it? I mean, I think for us, it, you know, for starters, I think it's easy to sort of fall into those circles. You know, Jeremy and I are college friends that go back 15 years and we have very similar upbringings, you know. Um, but I think especially because we were going into a community that we're not native to, um, you know, it was important to us from the outset that we start to build our crew and the people that were recording sound and um and uh, just, you know, kind of acting as fixers in the early days were of that neighborhood that knew the families we were talking to and, and could sort of relate, you know, various degrees of discomfort. Um, ultimately, you know, we were really lucky to find a field producer named Bradley Rayford, um, who's from North St. Louis and um, really became a very vital part of our team. So I think if you're, if you're working in a community that's not your own, I think, you know, besides race and class and all of these things, having someone who's local that is very kind of plugged into um, the community that you're working with is, is hugely important. Um, you know, and I think just in terms of crew members and things, always, you know, think we could continue to do a better job with that, but um, in the post-production process, you know, we did a number of test screenings kind of specifically, you know, within different demographics and sort of trying to get feedback from those circles. Um, we had um, incredible advisors, you know, who are very established editors, et cetera, um, and really just tried to get a diversity of, of feedback. Um, so I think that was really vital for us. Yeah, and <clears throat> speaking specifically to you know, how, how do you find partners from diverse backgrounds? I think, 
again, it's there's no denying that it's it's extra work and that you actually you actively need to decide this is what I'm going to do and work towards it because it's not going to happen naturally. It's if by default you'll work with <clears throat> the people you grew up with, the people you went to school with, um, the people that you hang around with, and so um, if you happen to hang around with people that, that look like you. I mean, maybe that's also something you want to, to question and, <laughs> and, and check. But I, I just think, you know, for so long, our industry has been um, very white and has been, you know, like a boys club, a guys club. And so I think, you know, it's incredibly important and we need to make it a priority to, to just start, you know, reaching out and, and making connections across some of these boundaries. So speaking of finding people, it's sort of funny to talk about this at this point in the interview because we've already covered so much interesting ground. But this whole film revolves around Daje, and she's so captivating. And it, it, it almost like you can't imagine it being anybody else, even though, like you said, she's emblematic of other teens. Um, so, And you mentioned at the Q&A last night that she wasn't necessarily like the first person on your radar. So how did you find her, and how did that evolve? And also, since we are talking to filmmakers, then what did you tell everybody else who wasn't selected to be your protagonist? That's, that's a great question. So, so we got to the school um, because that that was what originally kind of drew us out to St. Louis, and we um, the the staff at the school was just incredibly helpful. And in terms of saying, oh, you should really talk to this person, and they would, um, you know, help us find that. Um, student and we'd sit in a conference room and we would have these kind of these really really in-depth conversations a lot of them lasted over an hour and we just heard so many incredible stories and I think you know from that it was I guess for each student we were trying to analyze you know one is your your story kind of engaging is it the story we're trying to tell Uh, and probably even more importantly are you kind of interested in opening up your life and working with us uh, over uh, a pretty long period of time. And so in those early stages, it's kind of amazing because the film can go in so many different directions. And um, so many of the students could have could have had their own film. And you know, we just weren't clued into to Daje at that time. She wasn't one of the original students that, that the staff pointed us to. But um, at the very beginning, we started filming with maybe three or four different students just to see how things would go, how they liked having us around. And uh, during one of those early shoots, she stopped by her friend's house and uh, started braiding hair together. And uh, she jumped up on the bed. And just there was something kind of incredible about her openness, her energy, the way she was able to bounce between being just kind of a, a fun-loving teenager talking about you know boys and gossiping about girls and then opening up and talking about these really intense things in her life and, and not only being able to talk about these events, about getting shot, she was really able to kind of step back and, and not only talk about these really difficult moments in her life, but, but how that was impacting her internally and also kind of what it meant for society as a whole. So I think all of those things instantly drew us to her and and the fact that she was kind of so excited to have us around as well, it just felt like it wasn't actually much of a debate for us uh, that she was kind of the one to, to tell the story. So then there were some other characters you had been following and you had to say somehow, like, you're not interesting enough. No, that's not what you would say, obviously, but what do you say? 
And when we started filming with a few of them, we kind of told them that we were just gonna spend a few days with them for now. And so we weren't, I don't think we kind of told anybody we're committing to following you for two years and this is your story. And um, I think part of the reason that we, we went with Dajay and we didn't go with some of the other students is because they also weren't as excited. So I think it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't like necessarily heartbreaking for them. They were um, okay to kind of live their lives without cameras around, which, I, you know, I don't think having a, a crew of uh, bearded white guys from Brooklyn following you around is, is something that everybody would want. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think, you know, I tend to say making documentaries is about 85% diplomacy. And I think what, you know, what was the bigger challenge for us um, you know, like Jeremy said, I think a lot of the other people that we were filming with sort of naturally fell away. They either kind of weren't in the school anymore or they were kind of moving on to other things. Um, the much bigger challenge was keeping Dajay and her family engaged over a course of three years. And I think the way that we presented the project to them and how that evolved in our minds of what our focus was and um, just constantly revisiting what our goals were and what we were trying to accomplish and why we thought this was important and giving a lot of space for her to talk back and say, I just can't handle the cameras in my face right now, you know, and spending time with her without cameras, you know, kind of circling back to where we started, but just um, really putting a huge emphasis on that trust building. Since you brought up the cameras, of course, I do have to ask (laughs) about all the techie, geeky stuff. It looked, you know, to, to Iapo's point, it looked so cinematic and, you know, beautiful. And I could see how an audience might not be sure whether it's a doc or a narrative because it has that cinematic quality. So what did you shoot with and, you know, all the all the geeky details? I like to think we forced ourselves by kind of imposing limitations to, to have it result that way. I think we decided really early on that um, we were going to shoot, you know, a verite film exclusively on prime lenses. Um, you know, we were kind of shooting at the highest possible quality that we could and, and not, uh, you know, just create tremendous amounts of media. Um, but I think, you know, we, we did take a lot of time to, you know, do the simple things that we could. If we're filming in a classroom and there's kind of nasty overhead fluorescent lighting, we would often just turn all the lights off, you know, and open up the windows and um, try to work. You know, our, our director of photography, Nick Weissman, is hugely talented, and we had a lot of other just really incredible DPs um, contribute to different elements of the film. Um, but I think we, you know, we approached it with that in mind. We really wanted this to be a cinematic experience. Um, you know, I think often we would just sort of position people by the window, you know, wherever we could kind of get them to sort of prompt these conversations that, um, you know, it was almost entirely one camera. I think we kept it, um, you know, as sort of intimate and and low key as we could to sort of keep the naturalism of it. And, and, you know, we were working with, with prime lenses and we had, you know, the shallow depth of field was really intentional too, so that we were, again, we were not like far back. Um, we were really up close and, and just able to, you know, both in the way we shot it and also I think in the way that, um, that you watch the film, you're just really up close with, with Dajay through each of these experiences. And I think in a lot of the cases where we were sort of shooting, you know, these sort of verite scenes and we weren't, um, you know, doing kind of direct question and answer, I think something that I found to be really important was kind of thinking about the blocking. 
um, and how people were positioned so that we were able to sort of quickly move between, you know, getting coverage basically, you know, that we were able to sort of step back and get a wide shot. And, you know, like we keep saying, we were on just prime Zeiss lenses, um, just, uh, you know, relatively inexpensive Zeiss lenses for the, for the record, um, DSLR lenses. Um, but we were able to just sort of step back and walk into close-ups and wide shots um, and sort of just position people so that, um, you know, we could kind of line them up without having to walk 180 degrees to get a reverse shot, you know, that we could sort of walk in and out. I just want to say, I mean, it was, I wasn't on set, um, and I, this is actually my first feature documentary, you know, and it was a real privilege being in the edit room with these guys, and with Lily, our editor, because, you know, the use of coverage and the, and the use of these different um, angles and, and setups um, was, like, immensely helpful for being able to um, craft the story that they did, and it's just like, these, they're, it's just incredible, like they're professionals. And I did a um, field producing shoot with both of the directors, like with a different kind of gig, and I kind of got to see like behind the scenes magic of how it's, it's all done. It's, you know, I think it's a matter of like just really knowing your craft, you know, and understanding where you're going towards the edit while you're shooting. Like really shooting towards, okay, how am I gonna cut this together? Not only like, will it fit, but how is this gonna be beautiful? Like a year before you edit it, you know? It's just top, top of the line, like talent and strategy. <laughs> you, just, you just have to be good. That's your advice, listeners. Just be good. Um, so our last question, and actually this is for all of you, particularly because you were in the edit room, Iabo. Um, so I think you made the kind of film that everyone, every doc maker wants to make, not this topic or even whatever, but like in that... You, like we as an audience are really rooting for your protagonist, like a hundred percent. Like you want Daje to succeed, and you're like right there with her. At least I was. Um, so how? I mean, how do you do that? It's a big question. I mean, honestly, and if we're talking about the edit, which is obviously huge, you know, for every documentary, but especially this kind of verite, it's so easy for me to just get lost in the weeds of like, oh, I love that moment, and she has such a good look on her face there, but. For us, it was constantly going back to the fundamentals, you know, going back to the Robert McGee story beats and, um, you know, our kind of save the cat charts were on the wall through the entire edit. I mean, we were talking constantly about, um, you know, where are these beats? Where is she having these turns? You know, where's her darkest hour? We were plotting it every bit, um, you know, like a narrative screenplay. I mean, I think that we, we really were looking for that narrative structure, you know, knowing the footage that we had, obviously, but, I, you know, I think there was a real turning point for us when we just decided this is a coming-of-age film. We're going to look at, you know, Stand By Me. We're going to look at these films that are seemingly very different from what we shot, but really look at where the narrative beats are, um, try to highlight those moments and structure our film, you know, according to what we know works. Um, I think it's unfortunately rare in the documentaries that I see that people are really, you know, fundamentally strong in, in their narrative storytelling. Um, yeah, I'd love to add that, you know, I think in early cuts for us, and I think this is probably not an uncommon uh, problem to have, that it was kind of like, okay, we're gonna put together all of these dramatic moments we remember from filming and like put that in a string out and that was kind of an early assembly and, and that was tough to watch because it was just really, you know, intense and and depressing and, and kind of hard to see all of these things happen one after another. And, and it was really kind of going back and, and finding 
you know, Daje in this and what, you know, her, her life and her humor and all of the things that kind of drew us to her in the first place and, and putting that back in, um, was incredibly important. And I think also for us, because it was a coming of age story to really see her as a kid at the beginning and, and be able to see her grow up, uh, on screen was, was kind of incredible for us in person and, and hopefully in the film as well. And I'll just say, like, I got to do the fun parts, you know. They got to do, they had to do all the hard work, you know. So I got to do the fun parts of just sort of watching and, and adding in the details of saying, like, okay. But when she is mumbling or singing this part, like, that's really sweet. And that makes her feel endearing and it makes her feel um, identifiable. You know, it, um, people don't watch a lot of movies starring black women, you know, and black girls who are tough and who are introspective and have a lot going on in their minds, you know. And so... We, we really, we really had to pull out Daje because you need to love her and you have to care about her. And these guys already loved her and care about her. But as a person coming in later in the film, I was able to have that objective perspective and also the perspective as a black woman and saying, okay, these details are really cool. Like this part of the hair braiding scene, you might just cut out because it's random, but that's really important because other black women in the room are going to be like, oh, I know that. You know, or other black, or other teenagers in general, were like, "Oh, I know that song," or like, "I've done that with my friends," or just little fun things like that that really colored and like brought out the detail of her personality and of just making her an identifiable character that is universal, anyone can dig into and feel akin to, and like really root for. Well, thank you all so much, and good luck with the film. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Really fun. Yay! No film school. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. You can hear lots of other fascinating conversations on the art of filmmaking by finding the No Film School podcast in iTunes and, of course, by visiting us at nofilmschool.com. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you can catch our Indie Film Weekly News Show, which comes out every Thursday morning and fills you in on everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. You can reach me on Twitter at LizFilm, and we are on Twitter at No Film School. See you Thursday.